The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop coughing all over me and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 443 with guest Kate Gregory, recorded live Monday, April 27, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wonders why they would name a day after a sink full of mayo, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're here with the swine flu in New London. Hey, Richard, how the hell are you? I am doing just fine, sir. No swine flu? No swine flu, and it's the hey, there's barely any swine flu anywhere, really. That's true, really, when you think about it. It came down to not much and nothing. Yeah. But that's okay. Better to uh, react than not react. True. And I, I had a great discussion with some folks the other day where I said, do you realize that the United States runs the CDC effectively for the whole world. Mm. You know, in the end, that swine flu may have shown up in Mexico, but it was the CDC that identified it and distributed the information all over the planet. And, you know, as much as people may tease the Americans about their behavior and issues, they still take care of us. You're welcome. Yes, the Center you for go. Disease Control is on your side. Yeah, those guys. Okay, let's get into Better Know Framework. <laughs> Better Know Framework being this little section I do at the beginning of the show where I shine a light in some far-flung corner of the .NET Framework in hopes that over time you'll you'll uh, learn a few things about what's there. Go check it out. So we've been talking about the system Windows controls namespace. I'm going to back up one level oh. to the system that Windows uh, uh, namespace, in the which is the WPF namespace, to the vector converter class. Ooh. Converts instances of other types to and from a vector. A vector is a type. So, you know, we're not in bitmap land anymore, Toto. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not rasterized. This is why when you scale up uh, Solitaire, the cards still look great. That's right. They're WPFerized. <laughs> <laughs> They're WPFerized. Yes. 
So, uh, so in WPF, everything's vector based. That means you've got a lot of calculations and, and, you know, numbers and things that you might have to scale. So vectorize them with a vector converter class. It's pretty simple. Know it, love it, learn it. Yes, sir. Yeah. What do you got for me, Richard? Uh, this email was too good for me to turn down, even though it's not terribly serious for a Tuesday show. <laughs> I think I know which one you're going to read. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave out all the names to protect the guilty. <laughs> Let me start at the beginning here. Recently at work, we discovered a bug in a questionnaire module we developed whereby it didn't apply a maximum field size limit to the questions, so data could potentially be lost if you entered more characters than we stored. Anyways, we said we'd fix it, and so we did for the next build. But one lady in Telecells didn't know about this and contacted IC. <laughs> but one lady in Telesales didn't know about this and contacted IT support as she had the problem where she couldn't enter the entire callback note she wanted to enter when it stopped after 50 characters. The IT support guys came out to have a look and saw that she couldn't do it, so they immediately swapped her keyboard to see if that would fix the problem. Mm. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about that. Somehow my <laughs> keyboard is saying, you know what? 50 characters is enough. I'm just not going to let you do anymore. Yeah. That's uh, a shame, but it's worth a mug. You know, so. I, I, I pity the guy who's listening to the show right now going, don't, that was me. That, that was me. That was me. I Dude, we, we didn't keyboard. call you out for a reason. You can keep your secret, but we're laughing. So you remember we had this brain teaser. Oh, yeah. On the show, and we thought it might be a good idea to have some more puzzles that you, uh, the listeners, have encountered and, you know, sit and scratch your head over them and um, to try to stump our listeners. Okay. Well, a real-life one happened to me this oh. week, and I've got a couple in the queue, too, from listeners who've sent them in. And what we're going to do is we're going to uh, throw them out there for you to think about. And uh, if you think you know the answer to the puzzle, to the programming puzzle or the IT puzzle, send in your solution, and from the right answers, we'll pick a winner the next week and send you a .NET Rocks mug. How cool awesome. is that? That sounds great. So this is a, a real live one. We had, we have um, two networks, like most people. We have a private network and we have a public network. Right. So one of the machines in the studio that we use for storage and editing uh, has both a private and a public interface. When we record a show, sometimes we generate, you know, 700 megs of, uh, of data. Right. So, you know, that can take a few minutes over a gigabit Ethernet network. But the guys were complaining to me that they couldn't use a, a machine in the back uh, because it was taking 45, 50 minutes wow. to copy. And what's interesting is we were finding that on Vista, Vista to Vista, it was a, it was a problem. And XP to Vista was not a problem. There were some just weird things that were going on. And, of course, we went down the road of, well, it must be Vista's networking. Right, right. right. So what was going on? If you think you know the answer, because we did solve it, I solved it. If you think you know the answer, send it to uh, .NET Rocks at franklins.net. Next week we'll pick from the right answer. Somebody's going to get a mug. Awesome. And Richard, let's uh, bring back to the show our good friend Kate Gregory. Kate is a founding partner of Gregory Consulting Limited. Not sure what the limited means, but she has over two years as a part as opposed to Gregory Consulting All Inclusive. 
she has over two decades of scientific and engineering programming experience as a variety of programming languages, including Fortran, PLI, C++, Java, VB, and C Sharp. In 1989, Kate finally started using the Internet and hearing about it for years from friends who were already addicted. Uh, In early 1995, Kate co-authored a book on Usenet for Q. Usenet. Oh, wow. This is an old bio. It really is. Do you have anything from this century, Carl? I'm not even going to finish that except to say that she is like the guru of gurus. Kate, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. So you still see <laughs> Richard has like these, um, uh, you know, the the in the schedule what we're talking about, and it sometimes they turn into the titles, and sometimes they don't. But this week's was Kate Gregory still programs in C plus <laughs> plus. <laughs> yeah, and I and I and I wonder why at times, Kate, it disturbs me really. <laughs> there are certain things. There are still a few things left in this world you can only do in C++. This is true. Um, I've been doing somewhat less of those for the last um, six months or year because I've been really um, getting involved in making programming for Vista and now Windows 7 easier for people who don't want to program in C++. Um, so I've been I've been in a lot of managed apps and a lot of managed demos and samples and, and white papers and things trying trying to work on that making some progress. So what is it what is there that you can do in Windows 7 particularly programming wise that you can't do in Vista or anything else? Well, it um there's new features on the taskbar that are that are very cool. Um if you've been playing with with Windows 7 at all and, and you sort of right click an application um by default assuming that it has a registered um file format handler you get um, a recent files list, which in and of itself is superbly useful. Um, it's my absolute reflex after just a really short time on the beta that, you know, if I want to open a Word document, I find some Word document that's already open and I right-click it on the taskbar, and there's a good chance that, you know, whatever other documents I've been in recently are there. So that, that in itself is fantastic, but your app can go beyond that to add some specific tasks onto that. Uh, it's called a jump list. So, for example, if you have Messenger, when you right-click um, any one of your conversations, you can set yourself to busy without having to bring up, like, the main window and, and drop down your status and so forth. And so if you want to uh, call uh, the operating system and ask it to set these things up for you on your jump list, that's calling, you know, a Windows API. And Windows APIs are native code. So you can do that from C++, or you could do the P-Invoke work yourself, or we have wrappers uh, coming out kind of by the handful that... Uh, to try to simplify talking to the new APIs that may someday be in the .NET framework but are not today. So you have these, these wrappers to sit in between and to simplify some of that work. You know, I've been, um, I've been, uh, I've got a few technical questions that have been bubbling in my brain that I'd really love to talk about on the show, and uh, you know, a little bit of research that I've been doing in here, but that we've never actually talked about. And could you just indulge me for a second? Sure. All right. We have never talked about pinned objects, about pinning right? on this show. And all the stuff that we've done about the garbage collector and, uh, and some of these low-level things, I can't believe we've never talked about it. Well, you know, pinning, just, it's a bit like, like forcing a collect. The, the, the best rule you can give anyone is don't, and then there are some exceptions of when you would, right? Well, let's start so, with what it is. 
So um, the garbage collector doesn't just clean stuff up when you're done with it. It also tidies up even when things are still being used. So it can pick um, an object um, up and move it somewhere else on the heap. In effect, it defrags the heap and moves everybody up all snugly together to make bigger holes for future allocation. And it can do this without warning. That's correct, whenever it feels like going off. And so if you're living an entirely managed life and you have a managed reference to something in C-sharp or VB or whatever, the reference knows that that got moved to a different numerical address within the heap and, Mm. and the whole thing is invisible to you. The problem comes... Problem comes when you turn your reference in, into a pointer to hand off to some native code. Right. And you you want to basically say to the garbage collector, don't move this because I'm relying on its address for a little while. Now, did you say that this can happen even when, when, a, when a collect doesn't happen? Um, I think it is part of a collect, but the point is you don't really know when collects are going going on, right? Okay, that, that's not deterministic. So it's really it's really going to be a problem when you when you're bumping up against those memory limitations. You're using a lot of memory, and a collection is imminent. That's always the the joy and delight of anything related to the garbage collector is that mm. the old it works on my machine. It yeah. will work when you have like three records or items or what have you, right? And and you're just very you know leisurely playing with it to see if it works, it will work. But it may be vulnerable to some real nasty stuff at high loads um, when things are, are tighter and there's more collects going off and that kind of thing. I mean, pinning's evil because it basically limits how much the garbage collector can collect, right? Yeah, it basically says, don't, you can't move this. You can't move this, you can't shuffle this around to make room for something else to make a nice contiguous empty space. And so you do it for as short a period as possible. And it's a C++ thing, so you, we use the old resource um, acquisition is initialization. When you make the pinned pointer, the way when you make the pointer, you pin the object, and then when that pointer goes out of scope, which is hopefully very very quickly, uh, that unpins. Now, now here's the the situation is: let's say you're passing a buffer to a uh, to a stream or something like that. That yeah. that's when it can happen, right? Exactly, because you're just saying, here's a pointer, here's the address of a place in memory that I want you to write to or read from or what have you, and um, and you just telling the garbage collector, like, don't move this. Someone's using it. Now, if you make and that buffer big enough, will it automatically get pinned? No, I don't believe so. It's a, but, you know, a pinning pointer is, is, you know, when you make the conversion, um, if you're doing things safely and properly, you should never just be getting the numerical value of a of a address out of a out of a managed object anyway. You should you should be going through the right pinning cast. Now, what, what does that mean to the .NET developer? Uh, to be careful when they call native code. <laughs> okay, so more specifically, how can we how can we make sure that that when we pass a buffer to a stream, for example, that in a garbage collection happens, that it's so actually going to get filled? You should be confident that whenever you hand a reference to something, that you're handing a reference to a well written something. You know, so you don't want to use some interrupt that you kind of found on the bathroom wall. You want to know that it's it's being done well, and that was actually the original genesis of VistaBridge, which I talked to you guys about before, was as a demo for how to do interop well. Well, hang on before we before we get on. I know that I know that these problems can happen with sockets just using the regular .NET API under lots of memory pressure with lots of buffers and lots of things happening. If a garbage collection happens between the call to create the array and the and passing that into a receive that thing can move. So is there a way to manually pin um, a... In managed code? I don't know off the top of my head. 
Um, you could probably do something fake, you know, especially in C sharp, where you could go beyond safe for a minute and and cast it to a real pointer, and don't delete the real pointer. Ugh. But we we are playing chicken right here, right? Totally. Like you're trying to do this as quickly as possible because all hell could break loose. Like this is this is a blue screen waiting to happen. And so yeah, you've got you've got a tug of war because um, if the gap of time is, is too long and you don't pin, your stuff could move and and you'd have very bizarre results or errors. Um, on the other hand, if you pin it for too long, you're going to really mess up performance or cause some other piece of the app. To you know, call new and get null back because I couldn't allocate you that. So I was talking to Greg Young about this up in, um, I think it was Montreal, and uh, he said that one of the, one ways you can, one thing you can do is if you make a an array big enough, then it actually lives on the large object heap instead of which, the which isn't managed the same way. It mm-hmm. isn't managed the same way, and instead of m- creating all these little buffers for lots and lots of sockets or streams or whatever you're using you just create one big one and reuse it well if you're not careful then you're like reinventing heat like we used to do this but you're I'm ultimately trying to prevent a real problem from happening that can yeah, really happen you just have to know that you need it right like we in the days sure. before heaps could be defragmented if you needed to allocate you know some hundred thousand byte things and some one byte thing hmm. you would um, make a separate heap of your own only for the hundred thousand byte thing hmm um, strictly because, oh, I had this 100,000 byte gap and then I newed up like two ints, mm. right? So now that gap is 99,000 and whatever. Right. Um, and so the 100 won't fit. So I got to, you know, go someplace else and have these horribly fragmented heaps and, and, um, requests for memory were failing. Mm. Even though there was tons free, there was none contiguous, right? And so you would write your own heap manager for the large objects. Um, that's sort of not for the faint of heart. Right. Um, absolutely can be done. And in, if you are doing very, very large buffers in a very heavily memory-loaded situation, I suppose that's what you'd want to do. But if if you could throw metal at it first, right? you know, I would throw metal at it first before sure. I started to go there because that's getting really scary. Sure, the cheapest solution is RAM these days. Oh, my God, can you believe how cheap RAM is? <laughs> what happened to the price of RAM, man? <laughs> like, it's like they're going to pay you to take some of it. I know. Would you like four more gigs on sale today? Now the, now the challenge is finding motherboards that can take it. Yeah. Well, and, and and where's the incentive to write efficient software when it's like it's cheaper for me to give you this DVD and two tick two sticks of dim, you know, <laughs> than actually fix my program. <laughs> All right, I'm looking here. I'm looking here at uh, Newegg, and the RAM of the day is six gigs. Three times two gigs for ninety-two bucks. That's like thirty bucks a gig. Yeah, memory is cheap. You remember when it used to be a dollar a meg? A meg, yeah, yeah a meg. That'd be a thousand dollars a gig. Good lord! <laughs> God bless the Chinese. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Thank God for twelve-year-old girls who push the buttons on these assemblies. I'm just kidding. Apparently, yeah. it's all about our cell phones. Oh, really? Yeah, because people pay a lot of money for cell phones, so that provides lots of money to figure out how to make things smaller and cheaper oh, and lighter. Okay. Yeah. yeah, the iPhone is the driver of so much technology these days. Yeah. Kate, why does the Windows team hate .NET? <laughs> oh. <Whoa. laughs> 
<laughs> Where'd that well, come no. from, Richard? Well, it's just been going on for so long. Right. Yeah. I mean, I understood when when it was when it was back in XP and .NET was new, and you had an excuse. And and Vista, all right, it was a major rev, and 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 it was a bit of a struggle. But we're still going to have the same bloody battle of getting to the Windows API in Windows Seven. What so, what's up with the .NET thing? So you're going to have it forever, right? Because because the version of .NET that was released when when Windows Seven worked was done enough to that people could safely call it, right? Yeah. Was not four. And we don't even if they were gonna magically put all this stuff into four, we wouldn't want to wait that long. Okay? So you'll always have some sort of a gap. And the length of the gap is really the only thing to argue about. Um and the and you know the Donut Framework team have got, you know, resources and plans and schedules and guys with spreadsheets and things and uh and, and they've got their own sort of rules about what's going to go in. Well, it's pretty pragmatic, and the, the SDK team are heavily involved in these wrappers of saying, okay, these are our APIs, and we'll expose them. We're just not going to expose them in a product like the .NET Framework, you know, with all capital letters all over it, but we are going to expose them to manage code. And then, mm. you know, some things may only end up here. The reason the Vista Bridge was called the bridge was for that sort of temporary aspect, because some things might only be in there for one release, but others might be in for multiple releases until, you know, the framework finally so this is the second time you brought up the Vista Bridge, so now now we got a bite. Okay. <laughs> so I think I've talked about the Vista Bridge on the show yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Um a series of managed wrappers that, that started out life as how to do interop. Okay? So hey, if you want to call stuff in the in the Windows API, what you're gonna to need to do is interop. And here's a library showing us doing interop, which you can copy. And there is a small number of people on the planet who needed it for that. And for those people, it was ideally located 11 levels down on the SDK, um, you know, which you had to separately download because you're a developer and you're going to download the SDK. And, and then there was some samples and there was zip files inside zip files and eventually out would pop this library of, of interrupts. And we got it promoted a while back to being, you know, a library of its own and of having a life for people who really don't care how to do interop at all, but who wanted um, well, speaking of this ephemeral nature, they wanted to use the common file dialog um, at a time before the service pack that came out for the .NET framework when the common file dialog you would get from WinForms and WPF was the old style rather than the new style. Um, they wanted to use uh, restart and recovery or they wanted to use um, command links or task dialogs or any of this cool stuff that just added. And they didn't hmm. care, you know, whether it was calm underneath the covers or a Windows API call or whether there was some grody struct with 27 members, half of which were other structs. They just wanted to make the, you know, a managed call. And, and that's what the bridge did for them. And, and that's obviously gotten a much wider audience than the audience of people who want to learn good interop practices. You know? Well, and, and the problem here is that our customers have installed these operating systems and see those great UIs and wonder why their apps can't have them. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've had people tell me about restart and recovery that, especially in an enterprise context, this is the feature that would move them forward and off of XP, right? Because restart and recovery says, all right, your machine blew up or was rebooted because the updates installed while you were at lunch, which is just evil. Um. But, hey, your app is back open and your unsaved data is back on the screen right where you left it. Nice. I love, because I've done your presentation, Kate, at Tech Days. <laughs> and uh, 
And I just love this recovery mechanism. I think it's the coolest thing ever. The fact that the operating system could tell your app, hey, you're going to die. Anything you want to tell me before you go? <laughs> I love that. Hey, you want to scribble a little something down on a napkin and put That's it right. under? Yeah. Any last requests before we execute you? And then, and then it brings you back to life with this little hint that says, by the way, uh, you're not just being randomly started by someone double clicking you off the hard drive. You know, you're, you're in a recovery mode. And so then your app goes, oh, cool, I remember where I wrote that stuff, and yeah. puts it all back in. That is nice. Yeah. And I then, love you know, apps that do that. So, uh, IE, I, I blame Flash personally, but uh, IE does blow up on me about once a week. But when it comes back, it goes, hey, do you want all your tabs back? Yes, yes, I want all my tabs back. Like, I just invented four new swear words to deal with all the tabs <laughs> I lost. <laughs> So yeah, it's a wonderful feature. And then you wouldn't be afraid of the reboot. Like, Richard, you've seen me in action. You know, I just closed my list, right? Yeah. I have, I have 59 things open. Mm -hmm. My taskbar is three and four levels high and I reboot this laptop about once a month, whether it needs it or not. And, uh, I just live in fear. Like someone says, Oh, if things are misbehaving, you should reboot. I'm like, reboot. I don't have two hours to close all this stuff and write all this stuff down. (laughs) Right. No, I got a so, lot of stuff on the stack here. Exactly. So, um, and Outlook, I'm pretty sure, it's hard to know with Outlook, but I'm pretty sure when it comes back after one of these um, unexpected uh, restart and recoveries, all the mail messages that you had open, those windows are open again. I've seen that. Right. Well, and, and there are days where I wonder if this whole technology wasn't invented just to make Outlook a little usable. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm surly today. I know. Yeah, I'm a little surly today. Because Richard, it, you, you have know, you have swine flu? No, I know. I I just got plain old ordinary flu. <laughs> yeah, I think I got Outlook flu. I keep trying to I keep trying to read my email, and apparently that's an impossible operation. My problem with Outlook is the way that it prioritizes its threads. So yeah. if someone's on the phone and they're asking me a question, and I know the answers in an email in a folder other than my inbox, right? And so yep. I click on the name of that folder. But we can't be responding to that because there's important spam to bring in, right? Yes. (laughs) Which is not even in an alphabet I can read a fair whack at a time. And I'm clicking on the name of the folder and it's like, get your free pills here or whatever. And then I I go into task manager. You can turn it on and say threads, you know. That's like Outlook has 48 threads. Not one of them is doing what I want. And the question I always have is, what are you doing yeah, what, what are those yeah. 48 threads doing? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Just let me see the mail I already have that I know I like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I have sorted it myself. <laughs> but how I, I, I'm worried that all of Vista is like this. The number of times we were wondering why Vista has decided there's something it needs to do that's far more important than what we want it to do. Right. Yeah. Well, and Windows 7 has addressed a lot of this, too, don't you well, think? Well, they're supposed to have this philosophy, right, that the user's in control. Right. And and I am getting that vibe. I mean, I've been teaching some programming Windows 7, and people say, so how do I get my stuff, you know, pinned into the start menu? How do I get my stuff in the system tray? And mostly the answer is, you don't. That's for users to do. Right. You know, like, if I want your crap pinned up on my start menu, I'll put it there. Which is like, thank you, because, you know, under XP, you'd have 27 things up in the top half of the start menu that you never put there. Yep. So there does seem to be a bit more of a sense of of, um, of being a polite 
Um, and it sounds like it's still the same old code base. It's essentially Vista under the covers, but they've really just given it an etiquette lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they revamped this whole taskbar quick launch thing. The jump lists are fantastic. What's a li- yeah, what's a library? I mean, I know what a library is in general, but this is some new thing. So the way that they usually explain libraries is in the context of multiple machines, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, you've got the same kind of information probably scattered all over your network, right? So the classic example is pictures. You've got some pictures on your machine in your My Pictures folder or wherever else. Right. You've got some pictures on the family server, and there's probably some more scattered on three or four other machines. And now you're looking for some picture that was taken on February 13th. Right. So you're going to go to the folder and sort by date, but you're going to have to go to each folder one at a time, right? Mm-hmm. So with libraries, you basically create a virtual folder that's mapped into all these other folders. Yeah. And then you can search that aggregated thing, sort it by date, uh, group it by something, tags, whatnot, use the built-in search, whatever, across all these different folders without worrying too much about where the file physically is and find the file. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, I would use it with projects. Typically, we have a project folder on the file server, and then each dev has some sort of a working folder where they're putting, like, you know, random diagrams that they happen to scribble up or a photograph of a whiteboard or something. So then we can set up a library that would aggregate across all of those, and you can poke through them and look around. You know, it seems the, uh, that we're sort of creeping back to those features of the uh, the, the the new file system that was we were supposed to get with Longhorn. <laughs> Well, you know, this was one of the features was that, you know, there's a, the file system is replaced with this high performance index SQL server based searching index thing. Well, and that, part you, of that was breaking up files into smaller pieces as well, which I think we're still a long way away from. Yeah. What was the what was the file system called again? WFS? I think that's right. No, no, it was WinFS. Yeah, Yeah, WinFS. Yeah. Yeah. But then you know what? We were going to get a new file system starting with like Windows 95. I know. And it just turns out to be such a big order. I think, I'm not sure what, but I think somebody from Microsoft said what killed them was um, network support. Yeah. You know, being able to do that across network drives, which, you know, requires now a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, um, so so this sounds like that feature where you can sort of just uh, search through metadata. Yes, and, yeah. and absolutely. And you've got, uh, you know, custom properties on different file types. So you could say, I know which camera I took it on. You could, in theory, search based on which camera it was on. It seems to me the biggest problem with these kinds of file systems is, you know, I got my camera, I got my pictures, I bulk copy them over. And now I got to yeah. go through each one of them and tag them and like... You know. Yeah, well, and and every picture seems like, especially if it's a good one, it's in like a million places. Right. Right? So it's in the big family repository of pictures, which is vaguely organized by date. But it's on my laptop because I wanted to show it to someone. And then it's on someone else's laptop because they were traveling and they wanted to show it to someone. And it's on three or four USB sticks. And yeah. yeah. Hey, if somebody wants a job, you know, you can invent a business where you go to somebody's house, sit in front <laughs> of their computer and pull up your pictures and, like, rotate them for them and tag them and all that. And yes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'll, people will pay for out, that, sure. Mm. I, I want to figure out how to put those digital photo frames onto the network and onto live mesh. <laughs> and then I can just push new pictures to the grandparents. Yep. Right, I'll just have a bunch of live mesh folders on my desktop, and I'll drop pictures I, in, and they'll be on the bedside table. I guarantee you Scott Hanselman knows how to do that. I guarantee <laughs> you he's done it. He has probably his pictures being pushed all around the world. He has his pictures being pushed to Africa, I bet. Well, uh, note to self, when it, next time I see Scott, I'll button all of them. Yeah. yeah. 
But, you know, it is it is fun to notice the differences between 7 and Vista because they are real. You know, it is a little bit more responsive. It is, um, to my mind, a little more fun in the eye candy department. Right. Um, and and it blows up less off. So, yep. You know, I kind of like that. Kind of speedy fast, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not helping Outlook. There's <laughs> a hot fix. I, I just got to do the hot fix for Outlook. I'm just nervous. Always yeah. nervous with hot fixes. You know, there's all this disclaimer, like, don't use this unless you know for sure that this is your problem and a certified person told you and blah, blah. If your computer catches fire, we're not responsible. And Yeah, well, the thing is, if it's just a hot fix, how important could it be? You know, real real fixes go in service packs. Where's the service yeah. pack? Yeah, so partly I want to wait for the service pack. And, and, you know, as we get closer to tech ed, it's like I'm not doing anything to the important parts of my machine. Because I really don't have three days randomly to spend swearing at the fact that I, you know, completely borked something very important. Well, yeah. and, and almost more relevantly is this whole: I'm gonna, I'm gonna get it up and going. It's, I'm gonna think it's perfect. Then I'm gonna leave, and the day after I leave, it's gonna die. <laughs> as soon as I turn my back on it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Of course, I'm the guy with the servers, right? So I definitely yeah. time my server patches by how many weeks have I got home before I'm willing to do them. <laughs> Those are a nice, clean, clear spot with no crises planning, no big anniversary dinners that you can't cancel out of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Kate, VC10. What's yeah. new? Oh, well, tons. So, you know, the, the C++ language has a standards committee. And they don't put out new versions of the language very often, but they've been working on one for a long, long time. And it was nicknamed C++ OX. And the hope always was that X would not need to be a hexadecimal digit. Um, I don't think, well, it might end up being called C++ 09, but it's not, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, C++ OX is a major update to the language itself with, with new pieces of punctuation and new cool stuff um, that enable some of the ways that we program that no one had even thought of, you know, back in the 80s. Um, and some of them you have thought of in other languages. So uh, the two that I'm going to talk about, for example, at TechEd are lambdas and auto. And auto is just like var in C Sharp, you know. This is where you're saying to the compiler, look, I know you know what the type of this damn thing is. Right. Because if I type int and then, you know, x equals some big grody function call, right? The compiler is going to yell at me and go, Shit, that's not an int. You know, that's a, the, especially in C++, you know, that's an iterator into a vector of, you know, employees or something. Um, so if you're so smart compiler and you know what it is, then you figure out what it is and leave me out of it. You know? So you say auto x equals the big grody function call. Grody. So, Haven't heard that word in, since the <laughs> 80s. Technical term, yeah. <laughs> so um, then that's just, in some, at, at first it just seems like that's just a typing saver to save you from typing, especially in C++. You can have 20 and 30 character type names with a lot of angle brackets and double colons in them and stuff, and, and, and why type it all twice? But it actually also turns out to enable you to do certain things that you couldn't, um, at design time, write out what the type was, but it will be known at compile time. And that's where things like lambdas come into play. So lambdas in C++ are just like lambdas in, in C Sharp and VB.net. And they're a little piece of code that doesn't deserve to be called a function, you know. Um, and so there's some interesting punctuations been kind of dragged out of the attic. Hey, we weren't using these square brackets in this context and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and presto, we have lambdas in C++. 
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, Web UI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You never think about C++ getting new language features, right? Isn't that the same language from 1972? Richard, I think what you meant to say is you never think of C++. (laughs) I'm leaving it at that. (laughs) Well, you know, it has has happened sort of within semi-recent memory. Um, Const, for example, was not originally um, in the the language. Um, Certainly a lot of templates things have tweaked and changed over the years, um, and, and there are some template-related things in here, but if I started trying to explain them to you, your ears would leak brain matter, so we're not going to do that, uh, <laughs> except for one really easy one, which is that if you have a template of templates, and you know the angle brackets, which are also your greater than or less than sign, are in themselves operators, uh, for example, bit shift operators, and if you put two of them in a row... Um, the compiler used to think, wow, you're doing a bit shift here? That's kind of odd. Um, and then complain at you that this was a completely inappropriate place to do a bit shift. And so you had to put um, extra spaces in your in your type statements for no other reason than to calm the compiler down, like I'm not bit shifting, I just happen to have two angle brackets in a row. So it, it's actually very tiny, but it was hugely difficult. Um, I, I don't think there's a harder parser to write than a C++ parser, because the language is just so complex and and has so much kind of overloaded... Well, here's what it means if it's if it's by itself, and if it's after something, and if it's before something, and um, if there's a comma in between, and and just tremendous amount of layers and layers and layers of meaning as you put onto the the punctuation. So it's really hard to parse. Um, but native programming in C++ now is very template oriented because you know that's the power that C++ has that other languages don't. And if you don't need templates, then you can almost ask, what are you doing in this language? Right. What else we got new in Visual C10? Uh, well, uh, shared pointer. Uh, this is not part of the language. It's part of the libraries. Um, but the STL, you know, comes with every implementation of C++. You get, you, no matter who you buy your compiler from. And, and guess what? There are other folks who sell C++ compilers besides Microsoft. Um, and so the standard template library everybody has, and everybody can learn it and then uh, move from compiler to compiler and keep using it. And they've implemented... Um, a shared pointer, which is a, a smart pointer that's actually smart, replacing uh, generations of smart pointers that were, in fact, intensely stupid. So um, it basically gives uh, the equivalent of garbage collection 
to purely native programming. You literally will never type delete again and not have memory leaks. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So basically every time you call new, you hand that pointer to a smart pointer. And it has um, uh, overloads of the, you know, the, the, the points to operator and the dereferencing operator and so forth that actually use the, the true pointer inside. But this object is not a pointer. It's an object that sits on the stack. And when it goes out of scope, its destructor calls delete on the pointer it's been holding. This doesn't sound like C++ at all. It sounds entirely safe. Maybe we should all be programming in this language. <laughs> I have, always have the feeling after talking to Kate that I should be doing more C++. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that wears off. It wears off pretty quick, yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Once I open it up and I'm like, oh, what's all this goo? Yeah. You know, it's 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 difficult to read. It's like reading a uh, a human language that has a lot of accents or a lot of markers on the on the characters and and folks who know it are saying, well, that helps me. You know, I actually know better how to pronounce it because it's got this little symbol on it. It's not like English where you're just supposed to know. Uh, but when you first look at it, you feel really overwhelmed. And that's kind of how I feel about C++. You know, I like the fact that we don't just use dot for everything. Some things are dot and some things are the little arrow and some things are the double colon and they carry different meanings. And that's, that's helpful. But it can be confusing uh, to someone who's used to seeing the sort of unaccented version, which which uses the same symbol for a lot of different stuff. Mm, cool. So uh, how often do you program in a real language? <laughs> <sighs> You're lucky I like you. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm, I'm just surly today. I'm, I'm looking for a fight. But obviously you don't make your soul living working from C++. What is your language of choice when you're working in the managed space? So when I'm over in managed space, I'm almost 100% VB.net. Um, I used to be able to say I hadn't done any real C-sharp, only bits and pieces of demos. Right. Uh, but I, I now do have a couple clients who have some ongoing C-sharp projects that, you know, they, they want me to write, you know, a piece of it, and I do, and I write it in C-sharp for them. But it's still overwhelmingly it's VB.net for me. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. I mean, awesome. here's someone who does program in C++ and then chose VB.net for their for their managed code language. Is that really just to avoid uh, mental conflict? It, it, that was certainly, the, at first, um, you know what language you're in. You know, once you start typing, you know, brace brackets and semicolons, then suddenly you're going to try to do something you can't do in C-sharp because you forget and you think you're in C++. Um, right. That's been going on for long enough now that that's not really so much an issue. I also have this weird perception thing with my clients where they think that um, uh, VB programmers are cheaper than C-sharp programmers. Ah, okay. So they want me to write their apps in VB because they're going to maintain them, and they don't want to be having to hire an expensive C-sharp programmer to maintain them. You know, even though obviously the skill set to maintain them, you you, you have to be able to understand uh, WPF or, or, you know, uh, data adapters or web services or whatever I've written for you, you know, regardless of whether or not you put semicolons on the end of your line. Yeah, you know, sometimes us VB programmers feel like redheaded stepchilds. (laughs) You really can't say that to me because I'm the C++ group. We're at the complete children's table. But I do know, yeah, people. <laughs> Here's your milk and cookies. Exactly. You guys go over there. Go play. We've got wizards over here. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. I have a designer. <laughs> and then the C++ guys try to act cool and like, oh. We don't need no wizards. We're way too smart for that. Then That's right. Hey, man, I code pointers to pointers to pointers to pointers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, 
man. But yeah, I do, I do like, you know, VB.net projects that kind of do, you know, ordinary stuff. They put up a screen and people type some numbers and they hit the button and the numbers end up in the database and, you know, then they hit a different button and there's a report on their screen based on what was in the database and, and, uh, you'd be crazy to try to do that kind of stuff in C++ because you don't have designers and wizards and, and whatnot. So I do that stuff in a managed language and, and, you know, we all live happily ever after for sure. You bet. Hey, wasn't the Toronto Code Camp this past weekend? It was indeed um, an absolutely delightful start of the day weather and ended up with power failures and trees down and stuff by the end of the day. But uh, um, it was great. There was a bigger turnout than I've seen before. I missed the last one, but a bigger turnout than the previous one I was at. Um, some new faces, too. I think maybe some people who uh, have decided to be really wise to have updated skills. And a code camp is a great way to do that. You know, it's free and it's on a Saturday. You don't need to persuade your boss to give you time off. Um, people come out and learn about a ton of new stuff. Um, I talked about extending Visual Studio with um, macros and code snippets and add-ins and templates and even template wizards. And uh, managed to demo all of that in an hour and 15. I still feel like most of us have no idea of all of the features in Studio. Like, there's just so much stuff. Exactly. And that was really kind of where, you know, I promised these guys, I said, I'm not going to sh- exactly teach you how to do all five of these, but I'm going to show you that you can. And I'm going to code all of it live in front of you, except except the XML. I did paste the XML from somewhere else. But, right. um, you know, you can, here, look, toof, you have a new code snippet. So if you've got some business object that you just wrote, and there's four lines of code to consume it properly, just make a snippet, and then your you know your new devs can use the snippet instead of copying and pasting from the Word document into Visual Studio, right? Um, and we did some simple macros to do things like you know this is the Big Corp project, here's the name of the file, here's my name, here's today's date, da da da. Um, and then we did some uh, an add-in. I think my add-in read the file aloud, that kind of stuff, just to show people how quick it is, you know, to be able to hook in and start calling. There's this one giant object. It gives you access to everything Visual Studio knows and is. So your solution, your projects, uh, all the documents that are open, all of the commands on the, the toolbars and so forth. And it's, it's hugely intimidating and enormous, but I would love for people to start diving into that and giving that a whirl. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, and it's going to be really interesting to see what Studio 10 does to all this because it really thinks... They're focusing on making uh, extensibility this whole model much larger. Yes, and rightly so. I mean, when you think about if if you used as I did Visual Studio One, um, the range of applications you could create with it was far far smaller, and the range of kinds of developers was far far smaller um, yeah. than than what we now have. I mean, we have uh, three languages because I always count C plus plus. Plus any number of snap-inable languages, and you sort of semi-infinite number. Um, we have architecting tools and testing tools and diagramming tools mixed in with good old compile and link. Uh, people are building Windows apps, web apps, services. You know, they don't have any GUI at all, or they have a, an incredibly sophisticated GUI, and they need to go beyond Visual Studio to blend. Um, it's kind of astonishing to think that you could just take the tool out of the box and have it be set up perfectly for any. Any skill level, any any um, subject matter space kind of developer. So yeah, start tweaking it and making it yours. That's that's my theory. And they've 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 bought into it very big, and uh, there's a huge um, 
developer center on MSDN for folks who want to extend Visual Studio. And there's a big gallery of free extensions that you can you know download today and start playing with. Nice. Well, it's starting to feel like the environment is one thing and the languages are another. Like they've just created better uh, separation of concerns. I, I feel like we're heading towards a point where we're going to do even more with Studio than we're doing now. Yes, absolutely. I think there's lots of folks whose goal is just to stay in the one product all day, you know, and not have to, to alt-tab out to a browser or a Windows Explorer or what have you. Just, just sit there and, and, and stay focused on what you're doing. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, definitely you want it to, to be good at something. But for me, it's more about uh, yeah, being able to add in the features for being productive as a developer. Why else would I open Studio? <laughs> <laughs> Why else you know, would I open a browser? Well, you know, you can theoretically load any web page into Visual Studio, but I don't. Right. No, I don't either. But say, for example, you wanted to search... Um, the website of your choice or, or using the search engine of your choice, you know, some class that you're, you're reading some code and you're like, I don't recognize this class name and I'm not pressing F1 because I'm not stupid. Um, so I'm just going to copy this file name and then I'm going to tab over to a browser and then I'm going to bring up a search page either to search the web or a particular, you know, website that you trust. Um, then I'm going to paste in this thing, da 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 You know, you're about 10 or 15 clicks away from your original question. And so if somebody, you know, writes an ad in that lets you double-click the word and then choose some menu item and it searches your preferred search place, that makes you more productive. Right. You know, especially since what seems to happen at my place is while I'm tabbed over to the browser and I'm going to hit new tab, I catch sight of something in whatever the top tab was and then I start reading that and then I forget what I was doing and then sooner or later something else ends up in my copy buffer and, you know. <laughs> yeah, you need the ADD extension to a studio, <laughs> obviously. Right? That's probably true. Yeah. But don't we all? I mean, isn't that sort of our the profile of the, of your classical uh, classical? Yeah, team? all you want is a plug-in that creates a shiny ball, and then you're just instantly to, ooh shiny. <laughs> <laughs> what was I working on? I have no idea. We we'll call it the zero productivity ooh. add-in. Look at the pretty colors. Yes, every two minutes this little ball pops out, and you get no work done all day. <laughs> that would be very cruel. That yeah. Would be and I highly like effective. Are you uh, involved in any of these social networks of the day? Well, I don't Twitter or tweet. Um, I do occasionally read other people's, uh, you know, for like five minutes, and then I remember why I don't do that. <laughs> like, there, was this, there was this great channel from the MVP Summit because I missed the summit. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm gonna. Be, it'll be like being there. And it was all the eggs were good at the Sheraton this morning. Yeah. I'm on the bus. It hasn't left yet. Like, wow. I'm wow. so glad I, I'm following this. Yeah. Well, it must have gotten juicier as the day went on, but I'd, uh, I'd wandered away by then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I blog. Um, that's, that's from this century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No Facebook or MySpace or LinkedIn or any of those. Well, Praxo. I am on Facebook. I, I am on Facebook and I am on LinkedIn. Um, but in a very kind of passive way. Mm -hmm. So. Every once in a while, like every th three days or so, someone I've never heard of adds me as a friend, and I go over to try to figure out who they are, and then since I have to log in anyways, while I'm there, I like click home and look at all my friends' updates and go, oh, cool, people would like. Well, and then I wander away again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, LinkedIn, well, you know, I've had the same job for almost 30 years, so 
So LinkedIn isn't really serving that right. particular purpose for me very well. But I'm yeah. on there anyway. So the net, the last question is, uh, you going to come do some DNR TV on C++? <laughs> I, I do want to do some DNR TV on C++ and, uh, and maybe on some managed stuff as well. We might have to get together twice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we don't even have to get together. We can remote. You can remote it in. Yeah. yeah. Do it all yeah. remote. Uh, how much time have you had a chance to spend with the Windows 7 API? Because it looks like some of the new extensions we're going to get are really going uh, – they found they feel like things that are going to mess with the way we build software big time. And the, the two that jump out at me are multi-touch and location. Yes, yes. Well, multi-touch especially. I mean, you uh, – we we do have a wrapper. It's not in the official you know code pack wrapper, but there is a wrapper for multi touch from managed code. But I think it would be really bizarre to take like you know your WinForms app from from 2005 and and try to touch enable it because your buttons are all going to be way too small and too close together, and um, you're going to have a significant part of your UI maybe be in the form of tooltips and things, which are you can't hover with touch, right? You're either touching right. or you're not. Um, so really, if you want to implement touch, you really need to redo your UI um, into something that's that's a little friendlier, and there there can be a downside to it. So one of the things that comes with Windows 7 is a game of hearts. I don't know how long that's been coming with Windows, a long time, and, and I've played more than a few hands of hearts on plane. But the hearts that comes with 7 is touch-enabled, and in order to do that, the cards are pulled further apart so you can touch the card you want to play. Right. And I can't play it with a mouse now. Because the cards are too far apart for me to do the sort of grouping in your head. Oh, wow, I have a lot of diamonds or whatever. Um, <laughs> I can't do that because they're too far apart. So Boy, I, that I really, can't play it. That really sucks. Yeah, I have to play something else on the <laughs> but, You know, with, with any app, if you optimize it for touch, you may de-optimize it for mouse, right? So you have to yep. think about it. And so it does require really a rethink. Uh, this is not like sticking a ribbon on something where you still have all your real same menu handling code underneath, but you're just presenting it differently. Right. It's really, you know, rethinking your, your UI in a big way. Well, and the and yeah, whole other game of multi-touch, of course, other than Surface, the multi-touch I think of is the HP TouchSmart, and that's only two-touch. There is one that is a true multi-touch, but I've forgotten now who makes it. Um, I know someone who has one. That's why he keeps saying this is true multi-touch, not just two. Hmm. Um, it probably doesn't matter in a lot of business contexts. I mean, it matters if you write, you know, the game that lets you play piano. Right. Um, and he also says there's a, a Pong-like game, which if you put two fingers down on your side of the screen, the, your opponent now can't um, interact with their side of the screen, so you win. <laughs> uh, nice. But in real life real life business situations that you know two lets you do the the panning and the zooming and and uh all that kind of stuff that you see in the in the shiny demos right um there it's maybe a little harder to come up with rationales for three and four yeah i do think it's more complex and i, I want to talk about location because i'm just considering the possibilities because the three of us live on laptops of yeah. a machine always knowing when you move it yep you're now somewhere else so location is super cool because it's an extra layer of abstraction, right? right. So Windows 7 has this, this nice device support for sensors in general, so you can talk to a GPS or talk to a temperature sensor, an ambient light sensor, and so on. That's all nice. But then it kind of raises the stakes a bit by saying, we have this concept of location, and maybe it comes from your GPS, and maybe it comes from Wi-Fi triangulation, 
maybe it comes from your IP address, and maybe it comes from the fact that you went in on the property screen and dropped down the box and said, this is where my default location is, right? Never mind. Somehow or another, it, it's possible to know where you are. And so applications can just ask the location API, where are you? And get back an answer whose accuracy may vary, you know, wildly, um, but but can get back an answer without having to know what's installed and what's configured. Are you talking about cool. Second Light? <laughs> Second Light? Well, no. you were talking about uh, multi-touch, true multi-touch. Second Light is apparently the second generation multi-touch computer from Microsoft. Oh, there you go. And is it true multi-touch? Um, I don't know. I just I just did a search on it and I found this thing at info n a what is it info niac dot com. Um, and the second generation is called Second Light. The device is going to be developed on the first model and features a second projector within the table computer. It'll be able to project pictures onto a layer above the face of the screen. Surface that two will more be. Like surface. Yeah, that's Surface two. Okay, never mind. And so today, multi-touch programming and uh, surface programming are different today, but they will eventually coalesce. I also saw yeah. that Autodesk has uh, has some multi-touch displays. All right, anyway. I'm still thinking of the possibilities around this location stuff. That The fact that I could actually create a security model for an application based on you must be in the building. Yeah. So, so I know a fellow who's working on a sample called Laptop Lojack. Nice. And you know it's very well named. <laughs> like I can get you a link for it. Maybe we can uh, we can tie the URL it later. That is yeah. cool. I mean, if they can put a little GPS sensor in a cell phone, they can yeah. certainly put one in a laptop. That's right. So then yeah. your laptop, you know, it's on the network, knows where it is, tells you where it is. That is very cool. We could have yeah. used that during the uh, road trip, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it just I love the idea when you start thinking about this incorporated into the operating system level of a machine who recognizes, oh, I've changed locations. I should stop looking for my home network or I should, you know, turn off this stuff. Right. Oh, uh, this is like my favorite Windows 7 feature. Different default printers depending on what network you're on. Oh, thank you. Uh, Lordy. Because, you, know, you know, you go file print and then you have to wait 45 seconds while well, because it wants to update that line with the printer status, but it so can't find it on account of being on a different continent. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> simple f- features that they could have done. Yeah. yeah. So there it Long is. Ago. Like when I'm on my own network, my default printer is, you know, my printer across the screen, across the desk from me. When I'm not on any network at all, my default printer is like the XPS pseudo printer, which is, it comes back quickly. How about remembering network setting profiles? Pretty much. Can it do that yet? You know how uh, well, you, you know, your IP address changes and then you go back where you need a static IP address. And you're like, what the heck is that again? <laughs> they don't stick around. Why can't we have profiles like that? Does Windows 7 do that too? I haven't tried to do that yet because I'm cheerfully dynamic everywhere. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did because it does seem to have a lot of stuff that says, hey, I understand when I'm on this network, I need to act like this. Okay. And when I'm on this network, I need to act like that. I'm starting to feel like... Windows 7 is just a common sense version of Windows. Seems it's, that you know way. When, uh, it's like they have a little microphone and all those times that, that we've yelled, why the heck can't you just? Yeah. Somebody actually right. heard. Right. <laughs> I, I think they, they've always been writing them down and the stack finally got big enough that somebody yelled out and says, we can make a version on this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's very nice for the kind of, you know, road warrior type or even someone who just goes back and forth between home and work and so uh, is, just be in different modes. Is this going to be the marketing campaign? Windows 7, Vista without the dumb. 
what this should have been. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Richard, you are in a mood today, no, man. I'm surly. I'm very surly. Must be the <laughs> must be the illness. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's the fact that you you both are Canadians. You know. Ah, uh, there you go. Maybe that's it. You got a little. Time makes Canadians grumpy. No, no. I think he's got a little. You know, he's got an advocate now. He's got some camaraderie going, and uh, you know. <laughs> you're outnumbered, sir. I'm outnumbered, right? Well, you're not surly toward me, though. No, no, no. I'm just. But it's the attitude. It's like ah, another Canadian. We can get surly now. <laughs> <laughs> we can start flexing our muscles. That's right. There you go. So, Kate, what's coming up for you? Uh, I have Tech Ed next. Um, then hopefully I'm going to have a bit of a slow summer, although there's no actual, you know, proof of that. Um, I always want to have a slow summer, and I never seem to. Um, I have a whole pile of uh, of projects on the go that uh, are going to continue, I think, through the summer. Uh, you know, the aforementioned VB.net kind of stuff. Uh, I've got some fun mentoring going on, helping some guys bring their VB6 app into this century. Um, without changing it, just wrapping, accreting layers around it. So it, it exposes web services and consumes web services and uh, does all kinds of, of cool things while the heart of it is still built with BB6 every day. Wow. Yeah. It, and, you know, it, it sounds to me like the, the economic downturn just didn't really affect you much. Well, in general, it doesn't. Um, 2001 was a real exception. But normally speaking, when times get tough, uh, people don't want to commit to full-timers, but they still have projects they want done or they still have opportunities to save a lot of money, so they want someone to build them some software so they can save a lot of money. Um, 2001 was really weird for us because we actually were hurt by it, which doesn't normally happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't like to, to talk about it too loud because there's lots of folks who are hurting, but things are okay here. Yeah. I've had a, I've had a few folks tell me what recession. Well, also I was in the lucky position of having no savings, so I haven't lost anything. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kate, you mentioned to me a while ago there's a project going on inside of Microsoft to to actually convert WinForms to WPF. Um, yes, there's a there's a project on CodePlex that um, is quite simple. It's not trying to be all singing all dancing, but it will take uh, Windows Forms application read your code, read your designer file, and pump out the equivalent, mostly, WPF application. And I've had a chance to test an early version of it, and it does what it says on the tin. You know, go and open up the designer and toss some buttons and labels and checkboxes on a form and, you know, put in some handlers so that, I don't know, when you when you click the button, it tells you what you typed in the boxes, those kind of things. And then uh, you run it through the converter, and now you have, um, a XAML file and XML and the handlers are the, are fixed for you and the, uh, um, the property names are mapped. So something that was text is maybe now content in your code, but it's fixed up and, uh, the app, you know, continues to work. And, uh, I think it's a, a totally astonishingly great thing because I think it's going to take some people into WPF for the first time. What's this project called? So it's on CodePlex, um, WF then the number two wpf.codeplex.com. And um, there, I don't think there's a download there yet, but I got an early version last week and, and gave it a test. And there should be uh, something to download, you know, certainly before TechEd and, and possibly even before that. Um, where, you know, just to, if all you do is look at it and say, oh, so this is what WPF applications look like. This is what well, XAML looks like. Well, I'm thinking all the way back to the folks who learned how to write SQL by using the access query by example editor, right? 
Yes. You, it's just that flipping back and forth to see, yeah, you know, a control looks like this and a dialogue looks like that. I mean, that whole idea, which makes me hope that whoever writes this tool is writing a good example of WPF because lots of folks are going to model their development after something like this. And I'm talking to you, <laughs> North Winds. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, you know, they put Absolutely. out this database and how many people built their apps as modified version of Northwind. So mm. for a while there, if you were going to demo anything involving data access technology, you could count on one thing that you knew what they were going to query. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the first time I ever did one of these things, I'm reading over the demo script and it's telling me to type in, you know, AFKST for the, for the customer code. And I'm like, these people are insane. Who who remembers these kinds of strings? But of course, once you've done it once, you realize, oh yeah, yeah, that's Alfred's Fritikis, no problem, you know. <laughs> and off you go. <laughs> you know, people recognize the product line. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, no question. So wf2wpf.coplex.com. Yeah. Nothing to download yet, but they're actually building something that'll read WinForms and spit out WPF on the other side. Yes, and, and I have tested it, and then not only that, but after I did that, I took the uh, resulting WPF app, and I went over to the uh, WPF.CodeFlex.com where you can download themes yeah. for WPF, and I grabbed a, a theme which is literally called Shiny, Shiny Blue, and uh, using uh, a little add-in that somebody wrote for me that I'm going to be blogging about pretty soon, I applied the theme to the freshly WPFified app, and, you know, presto, it looks entirely different. Wow. And, you know, you, it's the sort of thing you can do in half an hour. Now, yeah. if you have more than five controls, you might have to drill around a little bit and make sure that, you know, everything really did come through the right size or font or what have you. But right. still, it just takes you over that big learning hump, and then you're just modifying. You know, editing's easy. It's getting started that's hard. Yeah, getting out of the blank screen. And and your logic should come over. So especially if you've if you've um, got your app reasonably well factored, so that you don't have a 700 line button click handler. You know, you're calling into some business object. Right. Uh, then you you know button click continues to call into the business object, and away you go. That's pretty cool. I, I think it's really cool. I'm I'm very pleased with some of the uh, some of the action that's happening right now to try to make it easier to write Windows apps. There's a lot of excitement around web apps, and they're sometimes the right tool, but um, I was in this morning looking at cars, and the guy couldn't give me a price sheet unless he brought up a browser and went out on the web. And we're out in the middle of the countryside. I said, and what happens when you don't have internet connection? He says, we can't sell any cars. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I got this little browser-based app, you know, and he types things in. And, you know, they make stuff up when you're selling cars, too. There's lots sure. of places for him to make stuff up. And then it does the adding and subtracting and dividing by the number you first thought of. And uh, it's all in the browser. It's like, why? You know, I mean, uh, why can't that be, you know, a web-based app that maybe goes out once a week and gets the latest promotions or whatever from the mothership with some sort of auto-updater, but why does it need to run in the browser? What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) What What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Okay. Kate, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and and thanks for getting Richard Surly. We needed we needed the ratings, quite frankly. <laughs> I can see the promo now, featuring grumpiness from Richard. Yeah, there you go. Thanks again, Kate. Hope to see you thanks. soon. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. .dotnet rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a talk